Welcome to Riding Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. The U.S.-Canadian border has long been touted as the longest undefended border in the world. While true-ish, this idea obscures the very complicated and often very violent history around its creation. The creation of the border is a quintessential Western history, and it reminds us of the messiness of settler colonial expansion, native resistance to and participation in the same and the ways in which differences in race or ethnicity can dramatically impact how state power is flexed and how individuals experience it. We will explore these ideas and others in our conversation today with historian Benjamin Hoy about his book, A Line of Blood and Dirt, Creating the Canada-United States Border Across Indigenous Lands. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, let me take a quick moment to explain a bit about the podcast. Each episode features a conversation with authors, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, academics, or others who write about the North American West. Our goal is not only showcase their work, but to spark curiosity among you, the listeners, to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the people who call it home. If a writer intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation, with me playing the roles of host, producer, sound engineer, and just about everything else, all of which entail tasks for which I have very little training. But I am passionate about the North American West, and all the work is well worth the excuse to read more and to talk to interesting people. At the end of this episode, I will include some more information on me and my scholarship, and on the Red Center, our programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. That's right, we may want to give you money. With all this business out of the way, let's move on to today's conversation. First, I'd like to introduce to you who it is we're talking to and why. Benjamin Hoy is an associate professor of history and the director of the historical GIS lab at the University of Saskatchewan. He has published on a wide range of topics, including indigenous history, borderlands, game-based learning, indigenous representations in board games, and extradition policy. Today we discuss his first book, A Line of Blood and Dirt, Creating the Canada-United States Border Across Indigenous Lands, published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. In it, Hoy examines the creation and enforcement of the Canada-United States border between 1775 and 1839, and its impacts on the Indigenous residents whose land the border was created across. Rather than a dry administrative history of the border's creation, Hoy's text is driven by a focus on the lived experiences of the people at the border. The cast of characters is diverse, and some of the stories are wild. Professor Benjamin Hoy, welcome to Riding Westward. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's wonderful uh, to be here. Yeah, I am glad that we're able to chat um, virtually. We were just discussing uh, off mic about whether we've met at conferences before, and I'm pretty sure we have. But you know, after this Zoom call, I'll know your face better, and we'll definitely pick each other out in the crowd the next time we're at conferences. Yeah, no, I mean, our, our work is is very, very similar in, in a lot of ways. So it's it's kind of a, a crime that we haven't really met properly before. Yeah, um, I mean, I should make a confession to listeners. This is by far the most self-indulgent I've been in terms of <laughs> picking books for the podcast that really speak to my own expertise and interests. Um, my book that came out in 2018 was about natives crossing board, uh, the U.S.-Mexican and U.S.-Canadian border. And your book is one that... I really wish would have been out, say, in the early 2010s, so I could have uh, read through it, be, you know, before wrapping up my own. But this is, this is the problem with publishing. You know, my book came out in 2018, but the real writing and research was probably finished. I mean, you know, if there's a couple years lag time, and in the meantime, all these new books come out, and it's just impossible to keep up. No, it's it's, it's wild. I'm, I'm sort of getting used to that myself. Um, where, you know, the, the, the last time I touched the book is a year before the book actually sees print. And then, you know, that's, and then, you know, all of the research, like you said, is, is years earlier sometimes. Yeah. So, I mean, by the time something comes out, it's already, 
a couple of years out of date in terms of the brand new scholarship. <laughs> um, well, so you, you've written this book about the creation of the U.S.-Canada border. It's not the first book on the topic. Mm-hmm. So how is your approach different from previous books? There's lots of books that talk about the border, but even there are books even specifically about border creation. I'm thinking of Tony Reese's Mm-hmm. Uh, arc of the medicine line and there's others so what how is your approach unique that merited you know a dissertation and and a book with oxford university press yeah so so this is a, a you know a really sort of interesting question i think because you know a lot of what i do is just born out of failure you know my, my own failure just to understand what i think are really basic questions about the world you know uh so you know i'm Although I didn't really think about this when I was creating the book, I'm, I'm born in the borderlands. You know, I was, I was born in Lethbridge, Alberta, and then um, I lived in Minnesota, and then I lived in Toronto, and then I lived back in Minnesota, I lived in British Columbia. Um, and that was all before I was in grade five. So my, my life just sort of flowed around the border. And then as I grew up, I kept crossing to visit family, to, to do all of these things. And, you know, so I, I had this question, which is, you know, how did this border come to be so open and so fluid and so different than all of the other borders that I crossed in my life? And so, you know, um, I, I got a, a chance to work on a project with Chris Inwood at the University of Guelph when I was an undergraduate, which was looking at the census for all different kinds of things. And one of the questions that I had was, can we use the census to understand how people move across borders. You know, if we look at the Americans who are in the Canadian census, you know, can we actually track mobility across time throughout these people's lives? Because you get little snippets of their life. You get where they're born. You get where they are at that current day. If they have kids, you know where the kids are born, which means you know on on that day that they were in a specific location. And so there's actually a lot of- Suddenly you have all these questions. You can, in your mind, see this geography of someone (laughs) from Vermont, now in Manitoba, with kids born in New Brunswick or whatever. And, you, and you're, you're trying to pe- like, what's the story? Yeah, yeah, you, you of, want to know the story. Happened. Yeah, no, so it's this, it's this really interesting piece of information where suddenly you have moments, snapshots of all of these people's lives. And so I became really interested in, you know, how does this happen? How is this border allowing so many people to move so freely? And the, the research that I was seeing is, is really brilliant you know, in, in some ways, you know, much better than, than my own research in certain areas, but it was all focused. So each one of these books, you know, one book would look at the Cree, one book would look at the Métis, one book at the Dakota, one book would look at federal administrators and, and how they operated, one would look at the military. And the end result was, I wasn't sure how any of this fit together. So you have this really complicated, really important border. Um, but all of the books are either regional or they're set on one group or they're set on one administrative organization. And as I found out later in my dissertation, there was a good reason for that. <laughs> you know, what I chose was in some ways a really stupidly large project, which is I, I just wanna know how this border works, but there's you know, 15 government organizations that go into that. There's you know, 60 or 70 ethnic or racial groups who all have very different stories around it. Um, you know, it, it changes over time, it changes by region. And so I, what I thought was a really simple basic question, which is what is this border and how does it work? Actually took me in sort of hundreds of different directions. And, you know, it took a lot of time uh, to sort of pull all of these together. And, and quite frankly, it wouldn't have been possible without work like yours, uh, Reese's and, and all of these other people who have done pieces of this bigger story. Um, and so what I was hoping to contribute is you know, something that pulls all of this work together and tells a sort of really accessible story about this border that's so important to our lives as, as Canadians or Americans. Where did it come from and, and why does it look the way it does today? Yeah, I, I noted this as I was reading through, I would catch these snippets where I'm like, oh, that, I remember these kinds of stories from Beth Lou Williams' book mm-hmm. about Chinese, um, uh, you know, anti-Chinese immigration stuff up in the Pacific Northwest, or, oh, this moment reminds me of Josh Reed's book about the macaws, or this about, you know, booze smuggling in Detroit and Windsor. Like, I, I was I was catching all of these things that I've read about in, I mean, what you can see behind me, like an entire, you know, row of my bookshelf is all these other books. So in some ways, your book is very synthetic in nature. Mm. 
which many writers, especially you know historians who are coming out of an academic tradition, their first big work, their dissertation, which is usually then their first book, are generally not synthetic works. Usually it's something on a very discrete topic that just digs down. And that's where you kind of hone your skills in researching and writing. And then often it's later in a career that a writer will then say, you know, I have the expertise and the confidence to now take on like 30 different subfields. I'm thinking of like, think about uh, like David Weber's um, mm -hmm. book, Barbaros, which was um, a hemispheric history where he goes from the Arctic down to Argentina. And it takes a very confident senior scholar to tackle that kind of synthetic work. So was this, um, well, I, I, I did, my book was comparative and it wasn't because I was ambitious or I thought I could do it. It's because I just didn't know any better. And partway in, I realized, oh, this, maybe I'm not up for this. Did you kind of face that during the writing process? Yeah. So I, I think like you, you know, this wasn't something that I set out to be, you know, super ambitious and, you know, stake my career on or anything like that. It was, I, I had a simple question or I thought it was a simple question. And every time I sort of moved in a direction, I, I just realized I, I didn't know all of it. I, I, I couldn't answer what I thought was a really easy question. And so, you know, I never set out to, to learn about Chinese exclusion or immigration, but I just, I couldn't understand the border without it. And so I picked up some of that and it was, you know, and then I was in the prairies and I was, um, you know, looking at transnational violence and some of these, um, these uh, kidnapping cases and these, these moments of rupture, some of the ones that you talk about where, where groups like the Korea are forced across the border. Um, again, not something I ever set out to plan to write about. Um, and, you know, as, as ambitious as my book sounds, I, I actually wanted to do more. Um, and then better judgment failed. So a lot of my book is on the Great Lakes, the prairies and the West Coast. In many ways, half of the border is just missing or, or sort of a minor piece. And I'd always dreamed of going up into the Arctic and helping to explain that, uh, like the Shiba Demuth does, or into the, um, the East Coast, uh, into Quebec uh, and the Maritimes and explain you know, the, the stories there better. But a lot of it in the end focused on the American and Canadian Wests, right around sort of the 49th parallel. Um, although pieces of the book go all the way down into um, Georgia and, and Carolinas and, and other things like that. But um, that was that was sort of one of those concessions that I, I had to make, where at some point the book was getting too big, too hard, um, that I needed to to get some of that focus because I, you know, I, as a PhD student, you don't have a research team of fifteen people, and you know, I'd already been to twenty archives at that point. I I wasn't really feeling like hitting another fifteen, nor did I have the funds to do it. Um, so it's it's always this balance between trying to answer what what is sort of a fundamental question, something that is really important with the sort of logistics of you're only one person and any of these questions um, sometimes can get really, really big. And so that's one of the reasons it was so important to me that some of the work had already been done by other scholars, certain pieces, small questions I could draw on and didn't have to recreate this enormous body of scholarship every time. And I could focus in my sort of primary research on the places where there wasn't much done. Yeah. How do you balance this though? Because, um, you know, we, when you undertake be it comparative work or really broad synthetic work, you risk being kind of a master of none, you know, a little bit about a lot of topics, right? Um, I, I always, I, I felt strongly that my book spoke to immigration history and it spoke to labor history, but I'm, those are not my primary fields. And so as I tried to integrate them and be in conversation with those broader historiographies, I was continually just nervous and uh, that I was not doing it justice, right? Because that's not, I'm not an expert in that. So how do you, how do you walk this line? Uh, terrified, um, you know, so, you know, I think one of the ways that I, I try and get around this is, is sort of a really old approach that, that writers have been doing for a long time, which is just controlling scale. Um, you know, there are certain stories that are told better at certain scales. Um, and so uh, the, the book really crosses a bunch of these, but, you know, when I wrote my dissertation, I was not very good at writing, um, you know, partly because I'd spent so much time trying to just figure out what on earth is going on. 
Uh, and so it's sort of this dry administrative history. There's, there's no people, there's no sort of life. And after I finished, I, I wasn't very happy with what I'd done. It, you know, it was, it was done and, and that's wonderful as a PhD. Uh, the best but dissertation I is the finished <laughs> dissertation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I wanted to go back and add people. And so, um, you know, I spent, I don't know how many months just going back through and reading and listening to oral histories, um, hundreds of them, as many as I could find at any archive that would, would let me see them. Um, I was talking with indigenous uh, groups like the Cree and, and Stalo and others, um, and, and trying to find the personal stories that were sort of, uh, that would typify some of these sort of high level administrative trends that I was seeing. Um, so you could see that two scales. So you could see, you know, this is what the government was trying to do. This was sort of their goal. This is what the province was thinking or, or sort of aiming to do. But this is actually what happens on the ground, which is ultimately how the border is felt. Um, you know, how does it actually affect daily life? And that I think helped sort of ground me in lived experience, you know, and it, it sort of reminded me of the limits of the government where you'd see all these policies and, you know, all these capture rates and all these things where you're like, wow, this border is really like happening. And then you read the people who it was supposed to affect and they don't, they don't write it once in their diary. You know, they, they go, you can tell they're crossing the border, you know, 50, hundred times in their life, sometimes even in a year, just by, they're like, oh, I went to pick up groceries at, you know, store across the border. And then I came back and you, you realize that you've, you've misunderstood how the border works on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it was really helpful for me to sort of get into the weeds as a way of helping to understand how this big national policy was actually playing out. That's one of the real strengths I think I like about your book is that you could, yes, could have written a very dry administrative history about uh, policing the border or about you know the surveys, right? And mm -hmm. you know, uh, but you instead you fill most of your narrative with these vignettes and moments of people's lives, and that's the driver of your of your narrative, right? Is, mm -hmm. is people lived experiences, which uh, which I think is one of the real unique contributions. I would I was laughing as I was going through the book because on one page you're talking about native nooksacks in Whatcom County in British Columbia, working across the, and that's where I grew up. So, I, you know, I love seeing all these local place names, like, you know, doing this stuff across the border. And then on the opposing page, you're talking about uh, Chinese immigrants. And then one page later, uh, you're talking about, uh, you know, in the 1870s, Ku Klux Klan uh, re refugees running to, uh, you know, to Canada to get away from the Reconstruction South. I mean, so you're just constantly kind of churning through all these different types of people that the border impacted in very unique ways. And it was sometimes dizzying, but it mm -hmm. helped like just offer the diversity of, of experiences. And then taken together, you do, you are left kind of, as you say, with this weird paradox in that at moments, the border is everything mm -hmm. and it has such power. Mm -hmm. But often, paradoxically, and at the same time, it is, it is meaningless and people walk across it daily. Like my dad grew up in rural Whatcom County, uh, uh, maybe like five miles from the border um, in, in a Dutch family. And there's a little Dutch town up right on the border, not quite in Blaine where the Peace Arch border crossing is, but just, uh, I think it's just east of that, there's this town called Linden, which is this Dutch town with like windmills and stuff and tulips right but he says that he remembers his dad talking about old time these old timey dutch guys that really liked ice skating mm. and that there was i don't know which lake it would have been but there was a lake that at one point straddled the border up in whatcom county maybe it was just a small pond but about how these dutch guys from both sides of the border in the winter would go up and they liked ice skating this lake across the border and they'd, you know, they'd skate up to Canada and visit some friends and have, you know, a drink or whatever. And they'd skate back across the border. And it's, it's that, those kinds of stories that make you think like, wow, the border really doesn't mean much. Mm -hmm. um, but for other people, maybe even at the same time, say, you know, if this is during Chinese exclusion or something, the border is um, inescapable, right? And all powerful. Yeah. And this was one of the, the big challenges when I was trying to figure out what on earth is going on is, you know, when you, when you sit down to write a, a book, 
And you have these cases that are just polar opposites existing at the same time, sometimes even like you said, in the same city, you know, trying to make sense of that was, was very difficult. Um, and it took me, you know, and this is one of the reasons I kept looking elsewhere for people who had done research on, on some of these different pieces was, was trying to figure out, you know, what on earth is happening? You know, is this, is this just accidental? You know, is this just, we don't have enough people. And so we're just behaving randomly and it's sort of luck of the draw, whether you get hit or not. And some of that's certainly true. But as I There's was doing, an unevenness, yeah, all aspects of the border, mm -hmm. that, that's perplexing. Yeah, but what I realized as I was doing more and more research was it it wasn't an accident. That part of what made this border so powerful and so unique was that the unevenness is baked at the core of the border. You know, I, I the the border was never meant to be even, and that a lot of the power comes from the ability to to add sort of you know you think you could think of them as sort of different walls and that there's a different wall that different groups have to cross um, or you know maybe a, a better metaphor is a prism you know all of the light goes in but it's stratified some of it slowed more than others and that's why you see see a rainbow and that's how the border works you know certain kinds of movements certain people face a, a much more intense border than others and this gives strategic advantages to some groups. Um, you know, so for, for Chinese, you know, the border hits hard, you know, by certainly the late 1880s, and it gets more and more intense over time. For indigenous people, it really depends on what they're, what they're trying to do. You know, the, the actual borders are often reservation borders or reserve borders. Um, and that's where national borders are actually policed um, because it's a lot easier to control this small reserve and the borders around it than it is to control this massive line. And that's sort of one of the, the problems, you know, the Canada-US border is stupidly big. And, you know- Lay it's... out the geography for us. This, I know our sense of scale, in, you know, comparing Europe to the United States and mm -hmm. depending on what globe or map projection you're using, it, it distorts, you know, makes Russia look bigger than it is or makes the, you know, parts in South America look smaller than they are. But you open with this, just mind-boggling stat that to yeah. go from like Point Roberts, Washington to um, what's your eastern terminus for this? I, I'd have to remember, but the, the sort of um, European one is from France all the way to India, and you're crossing Which, through all the like, stands. Yeah, Central Asia. It's it's, it, it's and, wild. And for a lot of it, it is. I mean, if if people have been up onto the northern plains at all there are some wide open lonely spaces that mm -hmm. well there's just i mean i've crossed the border a few different places in you know montana alberta and there's just nothing out there <laughs> or go uh farther west across the rockies and the cascades between you know washington and british columbia and it's as rugged of mountainous terrain that you could you know probably find mm -hmm. uh, and we're not even talking about alaska yet uh but, yeah the forgotten border right yeah the, I mean, I'm still waiting for a, for like the book on, or an entire, you know, body of literature on that kind of forgotten border. I don't know if you know, do you know David McCready? Uh -huh, Living yeah. with Strangers. Um, I had him on a panel once and he said, this was now maybe 10 years ago, that he said he was starting to maybe work on a book on the Yukon-Alaska border. Wonderful. He was, he was really generous. Um, when I was when I was traveling to um, the archive in I think Manitoba, one of the archivists said, "Oh, you know, this was really when I was starting out, and I, I didn't I was this was one of my first archival trips." Um, the archivist was like, "Oh, you you have to meet David McCready, um, who at the time I think was working sort of in a, a private industry. I, I haven't spoken to him in a, in a while." At the time, he was working for the Manitoba government. Yeah, yeah. And so um, like the archivist was like, you know, let me call him and see if he'll come have lunch with you. Um, and I, I just finished reading his book and it's, you know, really, really thoughtful. And he came down uh, to the archive and just brought some of his research notes with him and saved me an awful lot of time um, where he was, you know, he just sort of laid out, you know, these collections, I don't think will have what you want. These ones, you know, you can have my notes if you want them, but you know, these are the ones that I found a lot of material in and uh, for those of you who haven't been to the Manitoba archive, it's, it, it has it's an incredible repository of knowledge, but it's not well organized. You know, sometimes the description like will, will, will say something like, 
you know, there's 500 meters of records. You know, if you laid the papers the thin way and, and it will just be, you know, three sentences of description, like the attorney general papers. It's like, you know, just this un, unwieldy amount of information. And so having someone generously provide you with, with at least a little bit of a guidebook on, you know, where you might spend your time when you only have a week in an area is, is a real kind gift. Um, so we sometimes I'm, get glimpsed of this in acknowledgements where we're trying to, as quickly as possible, not forget names, but behind <laughs> that is just, yeah, so many people that I just cold called or emailed and mm -hmm. were so generous and, mm -hmm. and without which, you know, most of us couldn't have been able to do what we, what we did. There's yeah, a lot of people behind these, these works. And then that's, uh, it's sort of a good reminder that, you know, the, the work you, you sort of mentioned this is a really big book, um, but more than a hundred people helped by the end, you know, David McCready being sort of one of them. Um, and, and I think that's sort of the beauty of scholarship. You know, some of these projects we can't do on our own. Um, and, and, you know, just either it's I, sort of sending ideas, you know, and I'm not even talking about all the citations that I used where people have actually helped me understand the border in, in a sort of a much more nuanced way. And, and that I think is the, the, the profession working at its best sometimes. Yeah. Well, what about the border makes this um, a particularly Western story? Or what about the US-Canada border is uniquely important to understanding kind of the West as a region? Mm -hmm. I think there's, there's a few things. So when I was growing up, I always thought of the border as this sort of peaceful place. Um, you know, we think of the border as the, the longest undefended border in the world. And maybe with respect to other borders, it is. But if you actually start reading some of the history, it's, it's actually quite violent. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons, one of the reasons that the violence is so tied to this border is it's so big, right? And if you, if you think about just the logistics of surveying a border like this, so you've got a couple guys with some chains and some horses, and you need to walk the length of the Canada-US border, we're talking, you know, 5,000 miles. And, but they're walking into territory they don't know, right? They're surveyors, you know, they're sort of the, the vanguard of, of colonialism, which means they don't know where things like water are. So you might know where the 49th parallel is because you've got all this, this crazy good equipment, but you don't, you don't know the basic things about where to find food or water. And so a lot of it is deeply tied to indigenous communities. You just, you require them either for labor or for information. But even once you survey a border like this, you, you need a reason for it, right? It's really, really expensive to send these people out. You know, um, one of the, the crazy things that they do is they, they do what are called tree cuts, which are um, basically to see the border, you need to cut trees on either side. Otherwise you're just putting a, you know, a couple stones in the middle of a forest and no one could see them. And you're only putting these stones every couple miles. But you're doing that across a continent. Every forest you come across on the border, you've got to cut. And th this is such backbreaking work that almost everyone who does one round into these forests quits. You know, you've got to carry, you know, 50, 60 pounds of supplies, and then you, you set them down and you're walking back miles and miles and miles. Uh, and then the people out there are, are chopping. And if they don't get food, they're, they're coming home. And so logistically, this is really, really painful and it's really, really expensive which means you have to really want a border. You know, it, it's, it's, it takes hundreds of people to survey these borders. It takes, you know, lots and lots of money. It takes time. It's, there's, a, there's a risk that you're going to run into some uh, violence while you're doing it. And so one of the interesting things is you need a reason to want a border, as weird as that sounds. Um, and so a lot of that actually comes from moments of, of rupture. So uh, on the plains, it's violence, the Cypress Hills massacre and, and these other sort of mo moments of violence that show that neither Canada nor the United States has any real power in the region. In the West, it's all this anti-Chinese violence. There's riots, there's expulsions, there's, there's this unending sense of unease. And so in each region, the reason the border sort of forms plays out for a slightly different reason, but you need this sort of, you need this catalyst to justify the expense, the initial expense of surveying and marking this border in the first place. And so I think one of the big surprises for me was, was how much of a Western story this is, how regional pieces of the border are. And, and as you form each of these pieces, 
it sends um, a, a sort of piece back to the border as a whole. So from Chinese exclusion, we get a lot of focus on, on paperwork and sort of the administrative structure that, that allows you to monitor the movement of people because people are really expensive to track. Um, so each, each region is back on, on how the border is gonna grow in a certain direction. Hmm. And another thing that struck me as uniquely Western and, and I think a theme that we don't talk about a lot, uh, you, you weave throughout this uh, text, uh, not just how the creation of the border is you know, linked to colonialism and indigenous dispossession. I think that's part of our general narrative. Mm -hmm. and, um, but you talk a lot about native peoples, not as just hapless passive victims, mm -hmm. but how often the creation and maintenance of the border was entirely dependent on native cooperation, active native participation um, in creating the border. And I'd like to discuss a few examples of that, but as I think about it, that is an idea that I think needs to be exported to the West more broadly or thought about more. We often talk about Western um, you know, native, non-native relationships um, uh, solely through the, the lens of antagonism. Mm -hmm. But very little that the United States ever did in the West happened without native participation, not of all natives, but of certain groups, right? That mm -hmm. the only success they had was built on on their participation. Let's talk about a few of these uh, moments. Talk to us about one well, again, because I'm a Pacific Northwest kid, um, about the Boundary Commission uh, using native porters and canoes and laborers to get up to that just incredibly rugged, you know, mm -hmm. ca cascade region to do, as you're saying, this tree cut, right, uh, and all that. So how did they use native, uh, how did native peoples participate there? Yeah, so, so this is sort of a really interesting story. So I was looking at some of the most boring records that I think I've ever looked at which are um, just boundary uh, commission records. So the people who are building the border. And I was sort of looking through and um, I was looking through their pay lists. And I was like, you know, who is actually, who do you pay to do this kind of work? And it's normal people that you'd expect like astronomers and, you know, scientists. And, you know, in the United States it's military personnel who are sort of trained in this. And there's this large body of laborers and all of them are white. And I'm like, well, this is this is a little bit a little bit surprising. I was like, you know, surely they they hired at least one indigenous guide somewhere. Um, and so, you know, I, I keep flipping through, and it's just you know, white people, white people, white people. And then I get to the supplies section, and um, sort of on a whim, I'm like, uh, you know, what do they bring? You know, I, I don't know. And some of it's really wild. You know, they're bringing china plates. They're bringing hundreds of pounds of sugars, thousands of pounds of supplies. They're bringing like just enough lumber that you could build a whole city with. You know, the, actually supplying these, these people is very, very time consuming. And as I'm looking through this, you know, they're bringing marmalade, they're bringing, you know, the officers are sort of dining on fine china and, and all of this stuff. And the soldiers are living a shit life. They're, they're poorly fed, they're being swarmed by mosquitoes. You know, there, there's a real difference between sort of the, the leaders of this expedition and the people below. As I'm sort of reading through these supplies, I start to see all of these indigenous people who are listed in the supplies, not as laborers. So it'll just be this, this reference to, you know, Skako and 28 indigenous laborers. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and they're supplying canoes and they're supplying food and they're, um, you know, all of these different things. Uh, and it just keeps happening over and over throughout the supplies. And what I, what I realized is they were just classifying indigenous people very, very differently than the laborers themselves. Um, and so I set about just actually trying to figure out, you know, how many people are involved. And uh, it works out to about five-ish percent of the laborers, the sort of by day, are indigenous. And that doesn't sound like a lot. But when you start to look at what they do, you realize the surveyors just can't do their job without these people. So these are all of the guides. These are, these are a large portion of the people transporting this insane amount of supplies. Um, and if you think about it, it's really, really annoying to be traveling and suddenly find a body of water and not have a canoe. And so these indigenous guides are bringing not just um, infrastructure with them, they're building it with them. 
you know, uh, when they hit some of these bodies of water, they simply build canoes in the field, which means you don't have to portage this canoe, you know, up a mountain or, you know, all of these other things. And so it's, you, you can hear it in sort of the diaries of the people who build the border, how very important, you know, this, this uh, numerically small group is to the actual success of the border. You know, that, you know they'll, they'll say things like, um, you know, I, we just couldn't have done it you know, on just a sort of fundamental level. And you can, you can actually see it in how they move. Uh, so the Northwest Mounted Police, if we move regions a little bit, are really frustrated with their Métis guides. Their Métis guides, every time they hit water, the Métis guides are saying, no, we're gonna take a tea break. And so they'll take eight or 12 breaks in a day. And the Northwest Mounted Police officers are just dying at the speed at which they're moving. They just can't believe that they're moving so slowly. And you can really see the power dynamics. You know, despite you know being utterly frustrated and wanting to fire these people a hundred times over, they can't. And the, the Métis guides know how very dependent the Northwest Mountain Police are on them. And the same is very true in um, the Pacific Northwest, where you wanted to talk. Where you know you have two surveyors and you have thirty Indigenous people hauling supplies for them, and that's the only way they're getting up some of these mountains. You know, otherwise you have this you know surveyor with you know three, 400 pounds of supplies that they need just to live while they're, they're going up and down this mountain. It just, it would have taken years longer. You would have needed much larger teams if you could even get them out there. It just would have been a disaster. Um, and so you, you, you just sort of, as you look through these unusual records, these, um, the supply lists and things like that, you, you get a much better sense of, of how vital all of this is, like you said, and it's not just across the border, it's across all of the administration in the West. Yeah. So how do we understand then, uh, I mean, it was especially shocking with the Northwest Mounted Police, um, how kind of feeble and incapable they were at those early stages, right? Mm -hmm. to, to move around on the plains and whatnot. But you do say that native people's cooperate and help more often than they obstruct mm -hmm. so what are the reasons for this what are native peoples are making strategic decisions mm -hmm. um even if in hindsight or in the macro level we can see that they are aiding in processes that that they that may hurt them in the long run right mm -hmm. helping the northwest mounted police set up and uh control their lands right so what are the strategic decisions they're making or why are they making these decisions to cooperate and to help? Yeah, so, and, and this is gonna depend on every single group. And that's sort of some of the complexity of this is, you know, there's more than 500 federally recognized groups in Canada and a similar number in the States and all are gonna make decisions for slightly different reasons. Um, some of it is just being a good host. You know, um, settlers are not the first newcomers to the region. You know, there's, there's indigenous people moving all over the continent um, and sort of there's there's sort of basic ways that you 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 sort of deal with and handle outsiders, um, and often it's you know a pretty generous hand. The other piece, though, is in a lot of ways protecting or helping to build some of these national borders is a way to protect indigenous borders. Um, so you know being able to bring say the U.S. military nearish your lands was one way that uh, a number of groups used to keep. Uh, Canadian Indigenous groups out of buffalo hunting territory by essentially saying, you know, this border, they're not allowed to cross. And in turn, that helped protect some of my lands. And in the long run, that isn't necessarily a great strategy, but it's one of those things where at the time, that's not something you could have ever predicted. You know, the, 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 um, the geopolitical changes that happen across the continent are some of the fastest that you'll see. And it's, it's brought about by starvation and, and many other things. Um, but at the time, a lot of the decisions that Indigenous people make are, are really quite intelligent. They're, they're quite adept. You're, you're bringing in powers to play off against one another. You're, you're supplying, uh, you're getting allies for trade or military. Um, you know, and, and, like, and like you said, it, it doesn't play out like that in the end. But at the time that people are making these decisions, they're, they're quite intelligent. Yeah, this is a, a theme or, or an approach that I think I think it needs to be thought about by a lot of us in complicating how we think about native agency and decision-making. Uh, it's often much more strategic and nuanced than, than we often describe it as. 
you spend a lot of time not explicitly but implicitly demonstrating how the U.S. Canadian border was built uh, in opposition to the reasons for which the U.S. Mexican border was built, mm -hmm. the ways in which it was built, and the ways in which it was administered as this more cooperative venture between the United States and Canada as allies or peers. Mm -hmm. right? So talk us through some of that. What what makes how does that influence the US Canadian border in its creation and how is it so just fundamentally different than the other border? Yeah, so so at the start, you know, there's a, a lot of the same processes happen. You know, you, you have the border being cut through indigenous lands, you have um, you're stationing soldiers and all of these other things, you know, so from an administrative perspective, it looks like it might follow the same path initially. And I think there's a few sort of key differences. One of them is just the United States just doesn't respect Spain and later Mexico. It doesn't respect their military. Um, you know, it annexes California and a bunch of other places. It, it just has very little um, respect for the sort of military capacity of either country. That's not necessarily true of Canada. Um, not because Canada is strong. I mean, Canada has basically no military to speak of. But Canada doesn't become independent fully from Britain until something like 1980, some ridiculous um, later. And what happens is, uh, so, so we mark Canada's birth in 1867 with Confederation. But it's a really, really slow process of divestment. So in 1905, you have Britain removing its garrisons from Halifax and Esquimalt. Um, you know, it doesn't sign its first international treaty until the 1920s. There's all of these different markers. It doesn't declare war independently, you know, until, you know, the mid 20th century, where Canada becomes more independent. And so it's this really, really slow move away um, from Britain. And Britain, the United States does respect the military of. You know, it's not, it's not a country that I think it wants to try and bully for the most part. And it realizes that, you know, it can take a lot of different approaches to influencing Canada. And it's very expensive to fight wars. Um, there's these beautiful cartoons in the late um, 19th century that show Uncle Sam standing beneath a tree. And above him- one in class every semester. It's, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> and above him are all of these different apples. It, there's Cuba, there's Puerto Rico, the Philippines. And, and there's a bunch in, in his basket that he's already collected. And there's a bunch on the tree. And one of them is just Canada sitting there. And, and the caption, and I'm, I'm sure you can correct me if I, I get this a little bit wrong is, you know, it's a little bit too, um, it's not quite ripe enough. Uh, so it's waiting. And I think that's sort of the US's stance is, you know, we don't need to rush this. You know, they're at, the, at the time that they could have annexed Canada easily, they're actually moving heavily sort of into an economic control kind of thing. You know, the, the sort of banks that Canada is using is transitioning from British banks into American banks. And they're gaining the kinds of leverage and control they've always wanted but they don't need to risk a military invasion or the expense of a military invasion. They're able to create this, this sense of control without it. Um, and, and this idea that Canada is sort of um, uh, a brother from a common mother or you know, um, ambivalent allies, there's hundreds of terms that scholars have used to try and describe this, this relationship, but there's an idea of similarity in a way that I don't think exists along the US-Mexico border. But on the ground, that's not always good cooperation. Right? No. I mean, the records I've seen, you know, the U.S. military is always complaining about the mounted police and how they're not doing what they need to be doing on their side and mm -hmm. vice versa. Or, or think about uh, when the border is used by people to escape, right? Mm -hmm. uh, natives, um, African-Americans, mm -hmm. uh, you know, after the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, the two countries don't automatically cooperate and extradite mm -hmm. people as as the other country is always requesting yeah so so extradition is this this is what my next book is going to be on extradition is this weird thing so uh i came across the extradition records in canada uh, britain and the united states and this was the first time i'd hired a research assistant and i was like i'm going to give you an easy task I thought was easy. And like most of the things that I try and do, it turned out to be horribly complicated, which was enter the British records, enter the American records and just link them. And they're just gonna line up. 
right? Because this is the highest level of, of law, right? This is you know, so high that these, these are charges that are seem so important that we have to have an international agreement just to deal with them. And the people who are dealing with this are high ranking you know, diplomats and, and government officials. And I thought for certain that these were gonna line up. But and they don't. You can see like the British, you can see the Canadian side of the negotiations and you could just have next door the American ones and you could just link up the two sides of these conversations and negotiations easily. It was the not even, thought. Not even that. I thought, you know, it would say in the British records, this person is extradited on this date for this crime. And the American records and British records would agree on that. And they don't. It's this wild system. And part of the reason is because the extradition system does not work. It's expensive, it's slow. And worst of all, for many of the people on the ground, right? These are sheriffs who are dealing with local problems where people are swirling around them across this border. And they're not thinking about, um, you know, big macro diplomatic pictures. They're thinking, well, I just need to prosecute this asshole in my community who's making a mess of things. Um, and so what they decide, um, they, they try and bring all sorts of charges up that don't fit the extradition system. So you can extradite for say murder, but you can't extradite for abortion. And so what they'll do is they'll start, they'll start bending the system in these impossible ways. Well, I can't extradite for abortion, but isn't that just another kind of murder, they would say, right? So they would first uh, request an extradition for abortion, it would be denied, and then they'd switch the charge to murder, right? Or, you know, maybe um, um, they can't charge for embezzlement, but they can charge for forgery. And so, so even the basic things that people are charged with change and are bent in these really awkward and, and creative ways as people on the ground try and make this extradition system work for them. Um, and in, in essence, what begins to happen is they get so frustrated with the system that doesn't work for what they want it to do, that they just start making homegrown solutions, uh, especially in the West. Uh, BC is just rife with these, where uh, essentially the way, it, there's a couple different ways it works. Um, but one way is you phone the sort of sheriff across the border and you say, look, there's, there's this guy, you know, he's one in my community. You, you want to, you know, let me over and um, you and I will go and find him and we'll just, uh, we'll, we'll tie him up and chloroform him and we'll drag him back across the border and, and we'll try him. And when you have something like that, you know, you just phone me up and I'm going to come over with you and, you know, it's going to be a partnership because so both people are so frustrated with the sort of federal system that they're trying to reimagine a system on the ground. And in essence, what you're doing is just kidnapping. You're just, it's just state-sponsored kidnapping. But and is it both... state-sponsored if it's often just the local guys doing their thing? And, and that's where, the, that's what the sort of interesting thing is. The state keeps getting these complaints where, you know, the people who are kidnapped get lawyers and they say, you know, what is going on? This clearly can't be legal. And US and Canada sort of say, well, I don't know, it's all right. And, and basically what happens is they sort of turn a blind eye and their, their sort of general ruling is, this is a matter of diplomacy between countries, not a matter of individual justice. Um, and so if, if Canada complains, the, the sort of the nation state complains that one of their citizens has been unduly uh, hampered, then maybe we'll think about this returning them on a diplomatic stance. Um, but you get a bunch of uh, Supreme Court legislation in the United States starting in the 1880s and then later reinforced in the 1940s that says, in essence, it doesn't matter how you come to the United States. Once you're in the United States, we'll prosecute you. And this is sort of an open door to bounty hunting, to, um, uh, they're called um, uh, extra legal renditions. That's sort of the, the legal term for it. But essentially state-sponsored kidnapping or kidnapping that is later um, accepted in some way by the states. Um, and Canada will take a slightly different approach, although it will take a little bit longer to get there, where increasingly even today, um, Canada is a little bit less comfortable with just essentially underwriting kidnappings of foreign nationals or, or even its nationals as a way to sort of bring them back to justice. And so this is, this is actually a real divide that forms over time between how they conceptualize justice along the border. So how do we explain some of these really prominent cases of native um, border crossers like, uh, you know, sitting bull goes to Canada mm -hmm. and Canada does not extradite them. They don't kick mm -hmm. them back out or, you know, Little Bear or Louis Riel comes mm -hmm. down to the United States. The United States doesn't round them up and deliver them to the 
Canadian authorities. So, so there's lots of moments of on the ground cooperation, extra legal, and then federal acceptance of it. But there's also moments of not cooperating. Uh-huh. Is this going to speak to kind of just the unevenness of how uh, the, the power of the border is uh, imposed in just so many varied ways? Yeah, and this is also, um, this is sort of one of the surprises that I, I came across, which is, you know, if you think about you, you for the first time in a region, and you're trying to make it matter to people's lives, and there's two sort of approaches you can take. One of them is hard, and one of them is really easy. So the hard way is you station a bunch of guards and you try and actually monitor movement. And it's brutally hard. Even today, people cross the Canada-US border unannounced. Uh, you know, you can, as you say, in Montana and Alaska and large parts of the border, you can just walk across. The second way, which is uh, much more powerful and a lot more subtle, is you actually constrain your own power first. So you say, my law will not go past this line. So in many ways, you're, you're curbing your own power by saying, you know, I could reach across this border and bring you home. But one of the ways you make it meaningful is you make the law stop at the border. Um, and, and this happens with administrative policy. It happens in sort of hundreds of different ways. And so one of the first things that the border divides is, is the nation states, the sort of federal infrastructure that manages these borders. And I think part of that is, is what we see with Sitting Bull and, and others where you know, you, you could extend your power across this, this nation state, but you don't. And so there's sort of this parallel set of processes that are happening that are really interesting. So on the one hand, you're expending all of this money building this border because you want to gain control over this region. And at the same time, there's always this, this um, enticement to break your own border and grab these people who you desperately want. And so this is sort of one of the big um, balancing points between if you, if you keep reaching across and always grabbing people, then your border becomes less and less meaningful. But if you don't reach across, right, in some ways you're tying your own hands when you had the power to do something about it. And so my first book is about how you build the border. And the second book is about this parallel process where it's, you always wanna reach across and there's all these cases where they are reaching across, but then you have other cases like Sitting Bull and Riel and others or they choose not to. And in a lot of these cases, you can see this really interesting discussion on the ground, you know, where they, they were planning to send soldiers, American soldiers up to grab Sitting Bull. There was long negotiations about this and they just decide not to, partly because Major Hatch's horses all die. Uh, you know, Montana is, is, you know, Montana and then sort of the, uh, the Northern West and Canadian South are just brutal on horses. Um, and so, you know, and, and people get sick in these regions a lot. You know, this, the soldiers are, are not in good health. And so sometimes something as, as silly as horses just all dying or people getting sick or what determines whether or not, you know, you reach across this border or not. Are the reasons why we did reach across the southern border differently? Right? We, we range deep into Mexican territory, chasing mm-hmm. Apaches and others. Yeah, so I think, I think a lot of this is, is sort of a a respect is um, is given to Canada that isn't given to Mexico, um, because there's there's always there are, there are moments where American soldiers cross into Canada to kidnap um, uh, or to chase raiders like the Saint Albans raiders. Um, so it's not like this doesn't happen. Uh, you know, um, especially draft dodgers are sort of a common place that um, that U.S. military people sort of cross or, or interfere, but it's kept sort of a little bit lower. And, you know, it's sort of individual outbreaks of this, less sort of, you know, whole units going across. Um, and I think a lot of that is just that, that respect I was talking about and that fear that, you know, if you, if you aren't careful, you're going to start a war with the British um, that is going to be really expensive and, and good for no one. Um, and that fear just doesn't exist south of the border. Yeah. Well, we need to wrap up. Uh, again, as we've already... Uh, you kind of accidentally hit and started talking about all the topics I wanted to talk about before I brought them up. So that's really great. Um, <laughs> um, but again, I just wanted to, you know, underscore for listeners, you know, why they should pick up the book uh, uh, on its, you know, by the title, you might imagine a big macro level administrative history that would be very 
that, that might not be the most uh, engaging, but what's so great is that you tell that macro history, but mostly through individual people and lives and lived experiences. And I thought that gave this a really, a uh, real unique power that I was not anticipating. So I really, I really appreciate that approach. Uh, it's, that's wonderful to hear. That was one of my goals, I think, with this book was I was, I was tired of reading books that weren't accessible to the public. You know, I think one of the sort of beautiful things about history is the highest level research is accessible to the public in a way that, you know, biochemistry will, will never be. Um, and so, and I, I think it's because we, we have the shared experience through stories. Um, and so I, I spent a lot of time trying to find these, these wild and crazy stories about, you know, people getting shot across borders and, and all of this stuff, because you can understand so much through these, these um, lived experiences, like you say. Yeah. Well, you've already told us about what you're working on next. Do you have any um, closing thoughts about how uh, we might need to change how we think about the border today? Yeah, um, you know, this is always sort of an interesting question. So I spend a lot of time like learning about how borders work and, and when they work well. And one of the sort of the scary parts about this is, you know, the, the way that you make a border really, really powerful is you affect people not at the line itself, you affect them at their homes before they start their journey, right? Um, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm always sort of asked, you know, how would you change borders for the better? You know, I think, you know, if you want the border to be more severe, the, the further inwards that you can move that border. So it's not just, you have, to, you have to beat a border once at the line, you have to keep beating it sort of over and over. I think that's one thing that you can see today is the legacy of, of what they learned in the 19th century, where you now see, um, you know, constant requests for ID cards things like that come out of the 19th century frustration with you, you just can't guard either the US-Mexico or the US-Canada border at the line. People will always cross, but if you can extend the moment at which they have to keep proving themselves, um, you know, that's, that's an effective way to, to, to build the border, but it's also a really awful way in terms of their people's lived experience, right? It's sort of a border of, of fear and terror and I think that's one of the sort of negative legacies that you see from the pieces of my work and, and others um, that I, I think we want to reimagine how we build borders. You know, we don't have the, the technical limica limitations of the 19th century where they, they just simply couldn't do things. You know, the world we live in is, is quite different. And I think it's worth reimagining how you police a border in a, um, in a way that is less damaging to the people who live their lives in its shadow. I mean, this is where we get a few years back in Haver, which is, you know, 20, 25, 30 miles from the border that there are two, two women, I think like in a parking lot at a grocery store or something speaking Spanish and the border patrol uh, stopped them mm -hmm. and detained them, right? Not at the border, but 30 miles from the border. We see that even more extreme on across the southern border with the border patrol operating mm -hmm. uh, far distances from the border. Yeah. And that, that's a legacy of the 19th century. Yeah. Well, thank you for spending some time with us. And we look forward to you trying to untangle uh, extradition and make sense <laughs> of that. Uh, hopefully you can employ many more research assistants to, hope you, to help you make sense of it. Yeah, I hope so, because those stories are, are absolutely wild. Um, the, the number of sort of crazy stories about people getting tricked and, and kidnapped and, you know, lured into um, on fishing trips or by beautiful women in order to get them across the borders is wild and crazy. But like you said, it's this huge, uh, massive story that's more than half a million documents long. So hopefully well, good luck. we'll look forward to that in, you know, 30 <laughs> or 40 years. That should be great. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much, uh, Ben. I appreciate you taking the time and hope to see you uh, sometime soon at a conference. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Bye. Well, that's it for this month. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll subscribe. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through, or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates, leave comments, and communicate with me. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We are an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understanding of the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream. 
We have an annual funding cycle with awards, grants, fellowships in categories that nearly anyone researching and working on the region from nearly any disciplinary approach or towards nearly any kind of final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D center.byu.edu. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson. That's Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brennan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, just about everything else, so you can direct praise or critique my way. I'm the author and editor of a number of books uh, and other studies on the West, Borderlands, Native Peoples, Genocide Studies, Religion, and the Environment. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or just about anything else, head to bwrensink.org. That's B-W-R-E-N-S-I-N-K.org. Or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind.